Judges chapter 4. So we're returning to our evening series through the book of Judges. This evening we will hear this word from Judges chapter 4. But before we hear his word, let us call upon our God once again in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we do pray that as we return to your word this evening to once again hear you speak to us, that you would open our eyes, that you would open our ears, and you give us new hearts to believe, to love, and to obey your word. Lord, I pray for any this evening who fear, feel overly discouraged, defeated as they continue to battle with indwelling sin, that as they hear your word once again, they would be encouraged and strengthened in the fight. For we thank you that in Christ we have been set free from sin, and in Christ we have the victory over sin. So draw near to us now as we seek to draw near to you. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hear now the word of the Lord to you this evening from Judges chapter 4. We read, And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. And the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. The commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Herosheth Hagoyim. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help, for he had 900 chariots of iron, and he oppressed the people of Israel cruelly for 20 years. Now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, was judging Israel at that time. She used to sit under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim, and the people of Israel came up to her for judgment. She sent and summoned Barak, the son of Abinoam, from Kedesh Naphtali, and said to him, Has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you? Go, gather your men at Mount Tabor, taking 10,000 from the people of Naphtali and the people of Zebulun. And I will draw out Sisera, the general of Jabin's army, to meet you by the river Kishon with his chariots and his troops, and I will give him into your hand. Barak said to her, If you will go with me, I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. And she said, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. Then Deborah arose and went with Barak to Kadesh. And Barak called out Zebulun and Naphtali to Kadesh. And 10,000 men went up at his heels, and Deborah went up with him. Now Heber, the Kenite, had separated from the Kenites, the descendants of Hobab, the father-in-law of Moses, and had pitched his tent as far away as the oak in Zanaim, which is near Kadesh. When Sisera was told that Barak, the son of Abinoam, had gone up to Mount Tabor, Sisera called out all his chariots, 900 chariots of iron, and all the men who were with him, from Harasheth Hagoyim to the river Kishon. And Deborah said to Barak, Up, for this is the day in which the Lord has given Sisera into your hand. Does not the Lord go out before you? So Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him, 
And the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his army before Barak by the edge of the sword. And Sisera got down from his chariot and fled away on foot. And Barak pursued the chariots and the army to Harasheth Hagoyim, and all the army of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword. Not a man was left. But Sisera fled away on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite. For there was peace between Jabin the king of Hazor and the house of Heber the Kenite. And Jael came out to meet Sisera and said to him, Turn aside, my lord, turn aside to me, do not be afraid. So he turned aside to her into the tent, and she covered him with a rug. And he said to her, Please give me a little water to drink, for I am thirsty. So she opened a skin of milk and gave him a drink and covered him. And he said to her, Stand at the opening of the tent, and if any man comes and asks you, Is anyone here? Say, No. But Jael the wife of Heber took a tent peg and took a hammer in her hand. Then she went softly to him and drove the peg into his temple until it went down into the ground while he was lying fast asleep from weariness. So he died. And behold, as Barak was pursuing Sisera, Jael went out to meet him and said to him, Come, and I will show you the man whom you are seeking. So he went into her tent, and there lay Sisera dead with the tent peg in his temple. So on that day, God subdued Jabin, the king of Canaan, before the people of Israel. And the hand of the people of Israel pressed harder and harder against Jabin, the king of Canaan, until they destroyed Jabin, king of Canaan. This is the word of the Lord. I hope by now that you are at least slowly beginning to grasp the overarching story of Judges as it falls within redemptive history. For Judges poignantly and powerfully reveals God's unrelenting covenant faithfulness and commitment to his people, even when they persistently and unrepentantly walk in covenant unfaithfulness and idolatry. So Judges reveals the pervasive and descending spiral of sin. It reveals God's just wrath and judgment against sin, showing that sin always has consequences. It reveals God's sovereign grace over and in the midst of sin. And it reveals the need for an eternal, spirit-empowered Savior who can deliver from sin also revealing the hope of an eternal rest when sin will be no more and God and his people will finally dwell together in peace. But within this overarching story, there are other lessons we can learn along the way. For while the Old Testament is ultimately about foreshadowing and preparing for Jesus and his salvation, it also provides us examples, both positive and negative. It gives us encouragements, exhortations, all meant to help us walk by faith and with hope as we look to Christ and the promise of heaven. So Paul tells the Romans, for whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. And therefore, as we come to Judges chapter 4, 
I believe we can find some instruction, encouragement, exhortation, and ultimately hope, specifically for when we face seasons in the Christian life when we feel embattled and beset by sin. Maybe we just feel beset by our sinfulness in general. Maybe it is by a particular sin that seems to repeatedly defeat us. No, I'm not saying that the main point of Judges 4 is how to battle besetting sins, but I believe it speaks to that reality. For I want you to notice that little word in verse 1 again. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. That exact same phrase is used to introduce the story of Ehud. It appears again, introducing the stories of Gideon and Samson, even though with the story to Gideon, it omits the word again. But I wonder, have you ever felt the weight of that word in your own struggle with sin? Have you lamented in your heart, I gave in to lust again. I lashed out in anger again. I was selfish again. I let down my spouse again. I neglected my Bible and prayer again. I harbored self-pity and pride again. I wallowed in fear again. I wasted time on worthless activities again. Again can feel like an anvil upon the Christian soul and cause him to cry out with Paul, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Judges, therefore, confronts us with the reality of these sinful agains and of seasons when Christians who have been set free from the bondage of sin still live like slaves to it. For I want you to remember the, the setting of Judges. God had delivered the Israelites from their slavery in Egypt. He had brought them into the promised land where they could now live free to serve their God. And yet during this period of their history, they continually, because of their persistent and rebellious idolatry, live again oppressed and enslaved by other nations. The freed are living like slaves. So you notice the language of verse 2, the Lord sold them into the hand of the king of Jabin, the, the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan. Verse 3, he, that is Jabin, oppressed the people of Israel cruelly for 20 years. That's the language of slavery. They faced cruel oppression. They faced a foe they felt they could not defeat, for Jabin had 900 chariots. You remember from chapter 1, chariots were the military and technological advancement of the day. They were too much for the Israelites to overcome. It'd be like an army fighting with spears on horseback against an army with tanks and missiles. It's, it's just not a fair fight. Christian, are there sins in your life that feel like facing 900 chariots? Sins you feel like you cannot overcome, that oppress you like a cruel 
master. Although you know that you've been set free from sin in Christ, do you still feel like a slave? And I want you to listen to God's word here in Judges 4, for in it, I do believe that you will find instruction in your fight and hope for your fight. So I'm going to offer you six instructions for battling besetting sin, and then close with a word of encouragement and hope. They're not all the same length, so if some go really long, don't panic. Others will be shorter. So how then do we battle besetting sin? What instructions do we find in our text? Well, the first instruction is that God hears your cries for help, so keep crying. In verse 3, we read that the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help. They do this in each instance of oppression. Now, the longer we face besetting sins, the greater the temptation can be to stop praying against them. And I think that's true for two reasons. First, because we begin to feel that prayer is ineffective and unhelpful. For if prayer worked, wouldn't we have total victory by now? Well, not always. The Israelites were cruelly oppressed for 20 years before God delivered them. But he did deliver them. Delayed deliverance does not mean it's never coming. God commands us to pray, and he commands us to pray persistently. He says he will answer our prayers, but he does not always tell us when or how. So do not look at your continued struggle as evidence that prayer is somehow pointless. Just as we walk by faith and not by sight, we must pray by faith and not by sight. The second reason we are sometimes tempted to stop praying is because we are ashamed of our besetting sin and we believe that God must be fed up with us and he just doesn't want to hear it anymore. But here's an encouragement from Judges. If God continued to hear and answer the unrepentant groans of his people in these days, surely he will continue to hear and answer the repentant prayers of his people. I've suggested before that Israel's cries throughout Judges are not cries of repentance for sin. They are cries for relief from suffering. And yet God still shows them mercy. Will he not show you mercy when you actually confess your sins, no matter how many times you have to confess them? If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all righteousness. That promise doesn't have an, a limit to it. It doesn't say if we confess our sins less than 10 times, less than 50 times, less than 100 times. It says if we confess our sins, he's faithful to forgive us for our sins. And if Jesus commanded Peter to forgive those who sinned against him, not seven times, but seven times, 70 times, meaning you never stop forgiving, do you really think that God is commanding us to be more merciful to others than he is going to be to us? You cannot out-forgive God. 
True repentance is always met with total forgiveness, no matter how many times you have to ask for it. And so the worst thing you can do in battling besetting sin is to stop praying. The end of prayer is the end of any possibility for victory. If the devil can stop your prayers, he's won. Therefore, keep praying. Keep asking for help. Keep asking for the grace of forgiveness. And keep asking for the grace of faithfulness, meaning the, the faith to keep fighting. For God gives the grace of forgiveness and he gives the grace of faithfulness no matter how many times you ask for it. He hears your cries, so keep crying. The second instruction we learn is to trust the Lord's strategy. By this, I simply mean do what God tells you to do, even when it doesn't make a lot of sense to you. Verses 4 through 10 are the long version of what we've read elsewhere in other stories when it says, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel who saved them. So who in this instance is that deliverer? Now your initial answer in light of verse 4 might be, Deborah's the deliverer this time. But Deborah's not actually the judge. She's not the deliverer. Now don't get me wrong, she is crucial to this story in God's deliverance, but she's not the one who saves them. Now, I say that for several reasons. First, she is not introduced as one whom God raised up. Second, the usual verb for to save, which is attached to the deliverers, is never applied to her. Third, at no point does she or the Lord say that she will deliver the Lord into her, that she will, he will deliver the enemy into her hands. Fourth, she does not lead the people, but she sends for Barak. Fifth, she does not appear to fight in the battle. Sixth, in chapter five, she refers to herself as a mother in Israel, not as the savior of Israel. Seventh, in other instances, when this story is referred to, such as in 1 Samuel 12 or Hebrews 11, Barak, not Deborah, is the one named as the deliverer. And eighth, Deborah says to Barak, has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you, go gather, go fight? I could give you other reasons, but hopefully that's enough to show you Deborah is, is not the deliverer. Still, she's crucial. She's referred to as a prophetess, which means a, a prophet, prophetess in those days, they spoke on behalf of a God. Clearly, in this case, she communicates God's word, but we don't know for sure whether she was a, a regular prophetess for God or for some other deity. So remember, God would speak through pagan prophets at times. He did that with Balaam. The fact that she sits under a tree may hint at paganism, since trees were associated with idolatrous worship in Canaan. It's also interesting that she was between Ramah and Bethel. She's not at Bethel. She's not at Shiloh. Those were the places where the Ark of the Covenant, which signified God's presence, would be. 
And so the fact of the matter is we're just not sure what kind of prophetess she was. Yet it says in your English translation, she was judging Israel at that time and that Israel came to her for judgment, which could make it sound like this was an ongoing activity. She would be present and Israel just kept coming to her to settle their legal disputes. But I don't think that's what it actually means. What it means is that, yes, Deborah was viewed as, as some kind of, of leader figure. But Israel, we're told in verse 3, they cry out to the Lord for help. They ask for his help with regard to Jabin, the, the king of Canaan. And then it says those same people, those same sons of Israel, they're now going to Deborah to ask for the judgment. Here's one instance where they've asked the Lord to help. Now they go to Deborah and they want to know what does God say? And what's striking is that they don't go to the priests. They do not consult Urim and Thummim, which was the normal practice for discerning God's will. This most likely, again, demonstrates the failure of Israel at this time, including the priests. We'll, we'll learn about the priests at this time later in Judges. They're not doing any better than the rest of the nation. And yet God still speaks to them through Deborah. And Deborah tells them, go get Barak. Barak is, is the one God is raising to deliver Israel. It's possible that Deborah's word to Barak is the first time he hears the command, but I think, as it seems to be in the, the ESV, that Deborah's confronting Barak, saying, why, why haven't you done yet what the Lord told you to do? And Barak is still hesitant to go. It's debatable whether this is an expression of, of fear when he says, well, I'll only go if, if you go with me, or if he's just saying, I want some tangible sign of God's presence with me. You're speaking for God. I want you with me so I know God is with me. I'm inclined to think Barak is scared. And because he's scared, God says he's not going to deliver Sisera, Jabin's main general, into his hand, but he's going to deliver Sisera into the hands of a woman. Now, I've given you a lot of background under this second point, but here's what I want you to notice. God tells Barak exactly what he is supposed to do and how to fight this battle. He tells Barak, gather 10,000 men, go on Mount Tabor, then I'm going to draw out Sisera by the river Kishon with all of his chariots, and that's where you're going to fight. Now, that probably did not sound like a very wise strategy to Barak, which might be the reason he was so hesitant to go. Because Mount Tabor was, was basically a giant upside-down bowl of, of earth. And so if they all go stand up on Mount Tabor, well, Barak and his chariots, his army, they can just surround them, wait for them to eventually have to come down, and then they're just sitting ducks. And yet we read in verse 15 that when Barak followed God's plan, the Lord routed Sisera, and all his chariots and all his army before Barak by the edge of the sword. Now, chapter 4 doesn't describe how the Lord does this. But chapter 5 gives us a clue. Even though I'm handling these two chapters in separate sermons, they go together. Chapter 4 is telling the story in 
prose from a historical perspective. Chapter 5 tells the same story in poetry from a theological perspective. So sneak a peek ahead to chapter 5, verse 4. It says, Lord, when you went out from Seir, you marched from the region of Edom. The earth trembled and the heavens dropped. Yes, the clouds dropped water. And then if you look in verses 20 and 21, it says, From heaven the stars fought. From their courses they fought against Sisera. The torrent Kishon swept them away. The ancient torrent, the torrent Kishon, march on my soul with might. So what does this reveal? It reveals that when God drew out Sisera to the Kishon River, he then caused an earthquake and a massive thunderstorm with a lot of rain, which would have caused the river to overflow. And so the chariots, these unbeatable weapons, were all useless now. The ground is all broken up. It's now all muddy. They're going to get stuck. And so all Israel has to do is now come down from the safety of Mount Tabor and wipe them out. You notice in chapter 4, verse 17, that Cicero, when he's defeated, he, he runs away on foot. Now, he's got a chariot. Why wouldn't he run away on the chariot? Well, because the chariot can't go anywhere. And so God's strategy worked. My point, therefore, is that you should always trust the Lord's strategy for victory, even when at first it doesn't make a lot of sense. For God has told us exactly how to fight sin by faith in Christ. And yet you might wonder at times, why should I place myself before God's throne in prayer? Why should I place myself before God's word in study? Why should I place myself in corporate worship in Christian community? Why should I place myself under the authority of church government? Why should I flee and cut myself off from temptation? It's like Barack wondering, why should I place myself on Mount Tabor? Because God said that's how he's going to give you victory. God knows what he's doing. So your job is to just always do what he tells you to do. Fight besetting sin according to God's battle plan and trust his strategy. The third instruction is fight in the knowledge that God is with you and he is fighting for you. Your greatest hope in battling besetting sin is that you are never fighting alone and that your victory does not ultimately depend on your fight. In other words, in your fight against sin, God is always with you, and God is the primary fighter. This is why prayer is so crucial. Prayer is the conscious recognition of this truth. Prayer is fighting by humble dependence upon the God who fights for you. And though sin is beyond your power to defeat, it is not beyond God's power to defeat. The Lord told Barak, I will draw out Sisera. I will give him into your hand. It was a promise for God's presence, his power, his preservation. In verse 14, Deborah encourages Barak, Up, for this is the day in which the Lord has given Sisera into your hand. Does not the Lord go out before you? 
And verse 15 says, The Lord routed Sisera. The chariots were beyond the Israelites. The chariots were not beyond God. So Christian, I remind you that God never tells you to fight a battle in which he has not already gone out before you. He never calls you to fight a battle in which he will not fight with you. He never calls you to fight a battle in which he will not fight for you. He never calls you to fight a battle which he will not win. In fact, he never calls you to fight a battle which he has not already won. Which brings us to the fourth instruction, which is that as you fight, you ought to rejoice that God has already won the decisive battle for you, and he won it without you. Barak doesn't defeat Sisera. God defeats Sisera. But the even greater enemy was Jabin, the king of Canaan. We're told in verse 2, Israel was sold into Jabin's hand. You read in verses 23 and 24, So on that day God subdued Jabin, the king of Canaan, before the people of Israel. And the hand of the people of Israel pressed harder and harder against Jabin, the king of Canaan, until they destroyed Jabin, king of Canaan. So here's what I see in this chapter. As Barak pursued Sisera, he was pursuing an enemy God had already routed. The decisive battle had already been won. And when Barak finally finds Sisera, Sisera's already dead. So he was pursuing an already defeated enemy who would soon be destroyed, but not by his hand. The same is true with the greater enemy, Jabin. On that day, Jabin became a subdued enemy. And God was the one who subdued him. And yet there was still a period of time before Jabin was destroyed. So Israel had to keep fighting. They had to keep pressing. But they were fighting after God had already won the decisive battle. And Christian, I think that's an image of what your ongoing battle with sin is like. You are like Barak pursuing Sisera, or like the Israels pressing harder against Jabin. God has already won the victory over sin and Satan. And he did that without you. For that victory was won by Christ on the cross, upon which he declared, it is finished. So Satan is a defeated enemy. Sin is an already subdued enemy. So you may rejoice knowing you fight a battle which cannot be lost because Christ has already won. You see, we often grow weak, I think, in our fight against besetting sin when we begin to despair, thinking, I just can't win. And so we need to constantly hear the refrain, Christ has already won. Do you remember Paul's answer to his own cry, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? His answer is, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. As if, as soon as he cries out, he remembers, Jesus has already delivered me from this body of death. That's my answer. So rejoice that God has won the decisive battle for you, and he did it without you. The fifth instruction is to then rest 
knowing that God is working and overruling everything for your salvation. We've already seen this in the fact that God was working even in the weather on that day. But look at verse 11. For at first this verse seems kind of random, maybe unimportant. It says, Now Heber the Kenite had separated from the Kenites, the descendants of Hobab, the father-in-law of Moses, and had pitched his tent as far away as the oak in Za'anaim, which is near Kedesh. Now you might remember from chapter 1 that the Kenites had come with the Israelites and settled with them in Canaan. They had essentially become Israelites. Caleb, Othniel, these were Kenites. So Heber is essentially a traitor who has abandoned his people and he has made a covenant of peace with their enemy. But why should you care about this traitor and the fact that he moved? Who cares about his changed allegiance and address? Well, we care because this treacherous treaty and new address will bring Sisera directly into the hands of Heber's wife, Jael. And praise God for Jael. When Sisera flees after defeat, he heads toward the home of Heber, because Heber has made a covenant with Jabin, and so Sisera expects to find safety and friendship in the home of his ally. Now, when you understand the, the geography of northern Israel at this time, you realize that as Barak is pursuing the chariots and Sisera's army, he's actually going in the exact opposite direction that Sisera goes. So Barak has no idea where Sisera is. And yet Sisera cannot hide from God. For when Sisera shows up, Heber's not the one who's home. Jael is home. And apparently, Jael does not like Sisera. Now, sadly, Jael often gets a bad rap, just like Ehud does in chapter 2. She's viewed as treacherous and wicked. Some even interpret the language describing these events in sexual overtones. But I'm hesitant to follow that trail of interpretation for one reason. All I can say is that the Spirit-inspired song that follows in chapter 5 calls Jael most blessed of women. God doesn't seem upset with what Jael did. Now, I don't know what motivated Jael to do what she did. Maybe she remained loyal to Israel and did not share her husband's change of allegiance. But for whatever reason, when Sisera shows up, she immediately lures him in to kill him. And like with Ehud and Eglon, we get a visceral description of just how she killed him. For she makes him feel at ease. She covers him with a rug. He asks for water, but she gives him milk, maybe to make him sleepy. And when he falls asleep, she takes a tent peg and a hammer and she drives it through his head so forcefully that it goes all the way through his head into the ground. And if there's any analogy here with how we are to deal with our indwelling sin, it is that we are to be ruthless with it and seek to put it to death with all our might. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die, Paul says. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. You don't coddle sin. 
You don't compromise with sin. You kill sin. May the ruthlessness of jail with Sisera encourage you to be ruthless with your sin. But the point I want to make is that God even ordained the sinful treachery of Heber, and he determined Heber's change of address for his people's salvation, so that Sisera would end up in that tent. Every detail in this world has been ordained for the salvation of God's people. Every detail. And God will work everything, even sin, for the good of saving his people. And so, Christian, you fight knowing everything must serve your salvation. Because everything must serve the God who wills your salvation. So you rest knowing that God is working and overruling everything toward that end. Sixth and finally, keep pressing harder and harder against your sin. You ought to rejoice that God is the primary fighter against your sin and that he has already won the decisive victory. But that doesn't mean you are passive and irrelevant in the fight against your sin. In other words, all of this is not an excuse to just let go and let God, to just sing, Jesus, take the wheel. God doesn't command Barak to sit idly. He commands Barak to go and gather men and be ready to kill that defeated enemy. Barak must still pursue Sisera. And even though Jabin was subdued, the Israelites were to press harder and harder until he was destroyed. Christian God has defeated your sin. But he calls you to keep fighting and put it to death until it is destroyed. Sanctification is God's work of free grace, whereby we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God and are enabled more and more to die into sin and live unto righteousness, as the Shorter Catechism teaches. But it is a fight of faith, and so it is a faith that fights. God is sanctifying you, but you are called to work for your sanctification. So justification is 100% God and it is 0% you. You have nothing to do with your justification. Sanctification is 100% God, but it is also 100% you. You are to fight by the faith that God has given you. So you may equally say that God is the fighter who wins the victory and that there will be no victory if you do not fight. This is perhaps most clearly articulated in Philippians 2, where Paul writes, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. You're working out what God is working in you. So Christian, your sin is defeated, but you must keep pressing harder and harder until it is destroyed. And the good news is that your now defeated enemy will one day be a destroyed enemy. And the hand of the people of Israel pressed harder and harder against Jabin, the king of Canaan, until they destroyed Jabin, king of Canaan. So, Christian, you know that the guilt, the shame, the stain, 
and the power of your sin has been defeated and removed, but its presence has not yet been destroyed. And that's why you have to keep fighting. But you fight knowing that this defeated enemy will be destroyed. For the day is coming with the coming of your eternal deliverer and savior, when not only death will be no more and the devil will be cast into the lake of fire, but your sin will be annihilated. Just think about it. One day, no sin will ever be allowed to beset you again. You'll never know the sense of a guilty conscience. You will never weep over that word again. You will never have to cry out, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death. For on the day when Christ returns, you will only cry out, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. That day is coming. So you just keep fighting. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the victory that has already been won upon the cross of Christ. We thank you that the day is coming when Christ will return and he will make all things new once and for all. Oh, would you continue to help us look to that day with great hope and joy. But I also ask that you would give us the grace to keep pressing harder and harder against sin until that day comes. We thank you that you have set us free. Help us by faith to live as those who are free. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.